doesn't matter if it's online traffic, but traffic is critical in order to be successful. And what we are finding is that we can drive a lot of traffic and frankly, a lot of new traffic with our retail partners, our wholesale partners in their stores. What that's allowed us to do is to ratchet back digital marketing spend, which is largely focused on driving traffic. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. I always love having executives on the show that can really dig into the nuts and bolts of the business, what's working, what's not, and how they're adapting moving forward. This is one of those conversations. I sat down with John Maris, CEO of Solo Brands, right on the heels, literally the next day after their Q3 results were revealed. So we were able to not just go into the headlines, the actual results, but the why and the how behind it all. So you'll hear us get into everything from marketing strategy and paid investments all the way through to how the brand is investing in new acquisitions, store presence, and just general wholesale. It's a very interesting story of how one business is investing in a lot of direct-to-consumer brands and really building this vibrant portfolio that takes an omni-channel approach. Listen in because, sure, we get into some great tactics and some great lessons from John, but we also get to hear a very fascinating story of a brand that is evolving and adapting in this new retail climate. John, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, it's really good to be on the show today. Yeah, we have a lot to get into, including your latest Q3 results. But first, I do want to A bit of a pullback, I guess. You know, talk a little bit about solo brands holistically because you have a pretty diverse portfolio spanning several categories. But what I find so interesting is that there is a bit of a connected thread that ties all of these brands together. Can you kind of share what that thread is and how you're establishing and reaffirming your value prop as a business collectively? Yeah, in large part, the common thread between all of our brands is that most of them, if not all of them, come up through a digital native kind of origin story. So if you think about Solo Stove is kind of our, our anchor brand, Chubby's, Oru, Isle, and now this year, Terraflame and Icy Breeze. These are businesses that were primarily transacting online, digitally native, building direct relationship with customers. And most importantly for us, and sometimes the thing that's missed on this connective tissue is has created brands that are really focused on putting smiles on people's faces. It's the best way to put it. These are experiential brands, brands that when you use the products, you tend to smile more. And so we've been very focused on customer experience, creating good moments and lasting memories and doing that through digitally native brands. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot today about our omni-channel transition and becoming more balanced in our channel mix. 
But from an origin standpoint, these are digitally native businesses that have been focused on helping people create good moments and lasting memories. I love that. And I will say transparently, we have two solo stoves and they do bring a lot of joy in our household. (laughs) And, you know, I think to your point about creating joy and that connection, one thing that really stood out to me in the about section of your site is this quote, which is, we fundamentally believe that the future of commerce should be built by unique, distinctive, amazing brands that form genuine connection with their audience in a responsible and accountable manner. So I guess that kind of ties to your point that these are historically D2C brands with strong roots, strong connections. Um, I would love to kind of expand upon that responsibility and accountability point, because I thought that was pretty interesting. Can you kind of share how that applies to your approach as a business, especially as it relates to brand acquisition and development in the market? Yeah, you know, there's a lot to unpack in those words. We could spend literally an entire hour just talking (laughs) about that. But to be succinct, it really, to me, breaks down in two ways. The first one is there are great ways to conduct business online. And there are also not so great ways of doing that. So when we talk about being responsible and being accountable, especially to the customer, it's making sure that the way that we're interacting with them and engaging with them and building relationships with them, even now, whether online or offline, is done responsibly and in an accountable manner to where we're treating our customers the way we would treat our own family. It's funny around here, we oftentimes, even just with the customer service team, will say, listen, when you're interacting with a customer, treat them the way that you would treat your mom or your grandma if she called in. Like, what does that feel like? What does that look like? And I think holistically, culturally as a business, we really try to do right by people. So I think that's the first one is just making sure we're conducting business the right way. And then the kind of less obvious component to especially the accountable component to the customer is actually listen to them. We talk about direct to consumer and how important those relationships are with our customers. But if you're not listening to your customer, it's really hard to justify or to at least showcase that you really believe in what you're saying. For us, listening to the customer and then actually changing behavior based on what the customer's behavior or feedback is, is really critical and paramount to our success, or at least we believe that. And so the way that we interact, both direct and indirect feedback from customers, right? Sometimes they're providing feedback very directly and telling you exactly what you're doing wrong or what they'd like to see improved. And other times, kind of indirectly with their buying behavior, with their traffic behavior, with their behavior in your email list, they're almost indirectly telling you by what they're doing, whether or not you're doing a good job engaging with them and creating value for them. And so we're very focused from an accountability standpoint at actually listening and responding to our customers' needs. I love that. Yeah, because I think there's definitely sometimes an overemphasis in retail, especially on that direct feedback loop. We like through surveys and like what you get directly, like verbally through like chat, social media. But you're right, all of those different digital touch points give us so many indirect clues and cues into what the customer needs, wants, and what they respond to, which I think is why D2C brands had such an advantage and I guess still do have an advantage for so long. I do want to make sure we touch on the two newer businesses that are part of your portfolio. Like you mentioned earlier, Terra Flame, Icy Breeze. I'm always curious like how these larger businesses kind of piece together these brands to make a holistic portfolio. So can you share any details on how they're playing a role in your portfolio and your vision for 
the future of commerce that we've been discussing thus far? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it's not a one size fits all. It's not the same with every brand. They all kind of have their own unique value prop to the portfolio. And that is very much the case when we think about Terraflame and Icy Breeze. Terraflame, there were a few things that were really interesting to us about this business. The two that stick out the most and where they really fit into the portfolio is first and foremost is they had a stronger retail footprint as an overall mix of their portfolio or their sales and particularly a really strong relationship with Target, which is a retailer that we had had our eyes on as a portfolio. Um, so the first one was just that they had some expertise and inroads with key retailers that we liked. The second one is they have a product that brings fire inside or allows you to bring s'mores indoors. And we were attracted to that. Solo Stove has been long wanting to figure out a way to infiltrate or to get inside the home, not just outside the home. And Terraflame brought that capability to us with their biofuel. So this is a food grade safe fuel that you can burn inside almost like a candle. It's like a more powerful version of a candle that allows you to roast marshmallows and enjoy the ambiance of fire inside in a very safe manner. And so for Terraflame, those were very obvious synergies that we picked up. Icy Breeze is a little less obvious, maybe on the outset, when you think about Solo Stove and then you think about Icy Breeze and obviously the dichotomy between those two even brand names. But we've wanted to round out seasonality. The reality is, is that in July in Texas, we're not pumping a whole lot of fire pits out. It's 110 degrees outside. People still want to have that fire-like experience, which Terraflame maybe brings to us as people can go inside with their s'mores activities in the summer. But what Icy Breeze brought to the table was a rounding out of seasonality for us. So it allowed us to meet customer needs, but in a different way. And what we've really been about is bringing the comforts of inside to outside. And we've been focused on heat Icy Breeze now allows us to do that via cooling products. So it's actually a cooler that doubles as an air conditioner. So it literally blows the cold air out of the cooler onto you when you're outdoors. So if you're at a ballpark or you're at the theme park or you just want to go on a run or whatever it might be, boating, fishing, it's allowing you to take a portable AC with you that functions just like a normal cooler. You just throw ice in it, throw drinks in it, uh, but then use that cool air inside the cooler to air condition outside of the cooler. So we're pretty excited about it. Again, very different value props for those two additions to the portfolio, but both very exciting for us and, and something that we're excited to see grow within our portfolio. That's awesome. i got to get me one of those. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that they all have their distinct value prop, but they all kind of tied together into this bigger story that you're trying to create. And I do want to make sure we talk about what is happening from a business strategy sense, because like you mentioned at the top of our chat here, you are going through this process of taking these D2C brands, venturing more into an omni-channel strategy. But first, I want to make sure we hit on some of the core takeaways, headlines, so to speak, from your Q3 results, because I think it kind of sets a foundation and for our conversation here. So one, you saw net sales increase 8% over last year, as well as an adjusted EBITDA increase of 33% from the same period last year. So I wanted to dig into like these two findings in particular, because I feel like over the past year, We've had so many discussions with brands, retailers around how they're thinking about the ultimate profitability and efficiency 
of the business, which is why there has been such a focus on balance sheets. And we'll get into some tactical stuff in a second. But like at a high level, I would love to hear like what you're focusing on strategically, what measures have been made for solo brands as a whole in order to drive that profitability across the portfolio, especially as we think about like Q2 to Q3-ish, right? Because I know there were some interesting shifts that happened within that period. Yeah. You know, when you talk about, I think first and foremost, I'm going to get onto my pedestal here for a second. I hope that you'll forgive me. I love it. Good. When we talk about direct to consumer at Solo, we are really referencing relationship with the customer more than we are a channel. I know that the retail world and really the world at large, when they hear D2C, they immediately think of direct-to-consumer like e-commerce or online business. Right. But we believe that this omni-channel strategy and leveraging retail and online or e-commerce in a balanced fashion does not have to mean that we're sacrificing direct-to-consumer relationships. We actually are finding ways to build strong relationships even via the retail channel with our wholesale partners. And so you're going to hear me maybe talk a little differently about when I reference direct-to-consumer versus e-commerce and wholesale or retail, because to us, direct-to-consumer really doesn't represent a channel as much as it does a relationship with your customers, which we find to be the most important thing that we're doing as a business, regardless of the channel that we sell through. I say all of that because unfortunately, direct-to-consumer, DTC, from a channel view standpoint or e-commerce as a channel view standpoint has kind of gotten knocked pretty heavily in a post-COVID environment. We've seen a lot of digitally native brands very much struggle in this environment, especially around profitability. So there was this growth at all costs mentality where it was just spend dollars and drive growth even if you can't make any money. And Solo has just never had that mentality And that is not the mentality of any of the brands inside of our portfolio. We're very profit-oriented. And so as we thought about this shift to retail, we thought about it through that same lens. And as we've become more balanced in our channel approach, it's allowed us to continue to maintain this discipline around profitability. Now, what I will say about this is we have been profitable since the company began. So Solostove was founded in 2011. And we were founded with $15,000 in a garage by Spencer and Jeff Jan, the founders, incredible founders of Solo Stove. This was not like a capital raise type of business where we had millions of dollars to go and spend to try to grow our brand. We had to be very disciplined. And so that's kind of inherent in our DNA, kind of how we operate. But one of the things that's not talked about a lot as people kind of knock D to C and it hasn't had a great reputation over the last 18 to 24 months. One of the overlooked benefits of direct-to-consumer is the variable nature of the cost structure because so much of the costs are tied up in ad spend and marketing spend. So when we talk about our Q3 and even Q2 results and the profitability gains that you're seeing solo able to deliver in this omnichannel balance, a lot of it has been that we've been able to ratchet down that lever, that marketing lever, that digital marketing lever, as we have seen strength in wholesale And as we've been able to find the right balance, as you could see here, 8% revenue growth, but 33% EBITDA growth, right? Or profit growth. And so we've been able to outsize our profitability gains, even while still growing revenue, which again is very counter to what oftentimes you hear from other direct-to-consumer or e-commerce digitally native focused businesses who are bleeding cash, trying to keep up with revenue gains. 
Yeah, a lot of good points. And I, I would agree, I think, especially over the past year or so, there have been a lot of folks very eager and excited to jump on the anti uh, direct to consumer bandwagon for their own purposes. But that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, for John. sure. Definitely another episode, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I do want to dig into your one point around marketing, which this kind of relates to your Q2 earnings call, where you mentioned that there was a pullback on promotions and digital advertising, but that this would be beneficial in the long term for brand positioning and messaging, which really stood out to me because I think a lot of folks are really trying to figure out that right mix. They're really trying to figure out where to allocate that budget, especially based on acquisition costs, what channels are most effective, et cetera. So can you share a little bit of insight into that process? I mean, this may be a bit too tactical for you, so please say so if, if that's the case. But I'm just like curious, like how that decision was made and basically how it connects to the bigger picture for all of your brands and how you are marketing to the consumer, especially through the lens of like your omni-channel journey. Yeah, it's a great question. I love this topic actually. At the end of the day, this is one of the things that Spencer and Jeff taught me when I first joined Solo. Whether you're doing online commerce or offline commerce. If your retail business is online or if your retail business is in brick and mortar stores, there's really still only one thing that really matters that you have to have to be successful. There's a bunch of other things that are important, but there's one thing that without it, you can't find success and that is traffic. You have to have traffic. It doesn't matter if it's foot traffic in a store, physical traffic, it doesn't matter if it's online traffic, but traffic is critical in order to be successful. And what we are finding is that we can drive a lot of traffic and frankly, a lot of new traffic with our retail partners, our wholesale partners in their stores. What that's allowed us to do is to ratchet back digital marketing spend, which is largely focused on driving traffic, right? Then you have CRO and conversion rate optimization, and you're trying to improve your conversion rate. You're trying to hold your AOVs, which ultimately leads to revenue. But traffic is the main goal of your digital marketing spend. It's getting eyeballs on your products and on your brand. And so we've basically been able to replace a lot of our digital marketing spend with bringing in new exposure inside of physical stores and still seeing very similar traffic without having to spend all the dollars. Then we've been able to take some of the margin and give that to the retail partners to help them to be able to carry the product and drive this traffic gain for us. So for us, this has been about traffic and brand exposure. Over time, we believe that this brand exposure is going to ultimately still allow us to build direct relationships with customers as we incentivize those customers to stay in the solo ecosystem and then ultimately come back to our website to where we can build direct relationships with them. So that's how we think about it. We're very focused on traffic and making sure that we have eyeballs on our brand and on our products, regardless of whether that's in store or online. And we've just started finding, and I would say still refining exactly what that balance should look like. But we feel like we've made a lot of strides this year in getting it tuned in. Oh, that's great, John. And I think there's something to be said too, like as we discuss the value of these wholesale partnerships, having a presence in physical stores, there is something to be said about being in this space, you know, whether it's a Dick Sporting Goods or, you know, a similar store and being in context of like this broader story of that 
brand and the lifestyle that you're really trying to evoke as a business, you know, whether it's a solo stove or anything else in the portfolio. But it also presents the opportunity to really invest in tactics that can engage people at the shelf, quote unquote, right? Like whether it's shop and shops or whether it's like an in-store activation. I know shop and shops in particular were called out in your latest earnings. So can you share anything about your priorities, what that looks like, maybe even success stories? Because I feel like having presence on the shelf is one thing, but being able to blow that out and really create something engaging and captivating is a completely different story. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're asking about that because it's so relatable to this whole point that I'm making around traffic. Shop and shops and enhanced displays and retailers drive more traffic because they're more attractive, right? It's it's what you just described. They almost draw the customer to come and check it out because it looks different inside the store. And so we are very focused on that enhanced experience. We want customers to have an engaging experience. And, And I started this conversation saying that the customer and their feedback is what matters to us the most. But what we're finding, again, through indirect feedback from customers based on their shopping behaviors is that when we have shop and shops and enhanced displays, customers shop more. They engage with the brand more. They spend more time looking and investigating the products. And ultimately, they buy more of our products. So we're very focused on enhancing and increasing the number of stores, the number of doors that do have those shop and shops and enhanced displays, knowing that we're going to see some multiple increase in sales and even sales per square foot within that store if we can get those shop and shops in place. So we're partnering with our retailers to look at the data, see what it's telling us, and then find those doors that make sense to continue to build out those enhanced displays. And we're seeing great success in doing so. I will call out that this price or sale per square foot is a really important component when you think about shop and shops, because no doubt that generally speaking, shop and shops and enhanced displays are going to increase sales probably for any brand. But what's important is that if you're going to take four times the square feet as you would have had without an enhanced display, then if you're not selling four times more or really greater than four times more than you were on a square foot basis, you're really not improving And so you've really got to look at the data and make sure that you're driving outsized results based on the square feet that you're taking up inside that store. We have found success at doing that, at being able to create outsized on a relative multiple basis to the square feet that we're asking for in these enhanced displays, which has been highly successful for us. That's great. And then as far as like the future for your omni-channel expansion, your wholesale strategy specifically... Is the goal more partners, more stores? How are you assessing those opportunities? I always find it interesting to hear how folks are building out that presence and pinpointing like what geographic areas to focus on, what retail partners to focus on. So what does that look like for you right now? Yeah, we still have a couple of retail partners that are on our wish list. But I would say in large part, our strategy is more focused on better displays, better real estate inside the doors that we already have with the partners we already have. We're really happy with the relationship that we have with Ace Hardware, with Dick's Sporting Goods, Costco, Shields, 
the list goes on. There's many that we're very happy with. There are a couple that we wish to add, but we really want to do more with our current partners. We believe there's massive opportunity for us, again, with these enhanced displays and shopping shops uh, to do much more than we're currently doing. And, and we think we're, we're early in that story. Oh, that's great. And I know, like you mentioned, it is an ongoing process. It is an ongoing journey. But I'm curious, like even just looking at the evolution from Q2 to Q3, I mean, it's pretty interesting to see how the story continues to build. So within that time, I mean, what have you learned about the consumer in this process? Like, obviously, there are the macro issues or trends such as, you know, issues regarding inflation and just general general sentiment around their financial standing, where they're spending, what they're buying, but there's also like the direct relationship like we've been talking about that the customer has with your brands. So is there anything that you've learned about the customer over this time? And if so, how will these insights, these indirect cues that we talked about earlier, how will this uh, impact your strategy, especially as we think about 2024 and what that vision looks like long term? Yeah, the number one thing that we've learned about the consumer this year has been that optionality really matters to the consumer today. I mean, we live in a world where consumers want it their way when and how they want it. And they expect for brands to show up their way, not the brand's way. And we've learned a lot about making sure that we have not just the right retail partners, but that we also have the right merchandising strategy within those retailers. They all have different customer bases that have different needs and different wants. And what we're working really hard to do is to make sure that we're meeting the needs of our customers. Again, it just requires intentionality. You don't just go to a retailer and say, here's our catalog. What do you want to carry? But you really try to get to know their customer and then help advise them on what products that we know based on our internal data for our direct-to-consumer or e-commerce business, what do we know about that consumer that we can help advise the retailer on what to carry so that they can have the most success, but most importantly, so that we can meet the needs of both of our customers now, right? The solo customer and the Dick Sporting Goods customer, the solo customer and the Costco customer, or whatever retailer it is that the customer's buying at. So we've been very focused on that. It's been one of our greatest learnings is that optionality matters, that customer wants choices, and they don't want to be told that there's limitations to what they want. So we've been focused on listening to the customer both directly and indirectly on those cues that you're mentioning and ultimately driving a merchandising strategy that meets those needs. That's awesome. And then as we go into 2024, are there any other trends, tactics, technologies even that you'll be closely assessing, even embracing over the next year? I mean, I know there's no shortage of buzzwords and buzzy tech that pops up in the retail industry, but what really stands out for you and the solo team? You know, technology is ever-changing. There's so much happening there. And our team is doing an incredible job at assessing tech and having it intersect properly with the reality of e-commerce and retail and, and what it all means for the consumer. But on an overarching basis, I'd say the thing that we're most focused on in 2024 that we have our eyes on is, is just the consumer holistically. It's an interesting environment out there. It has not been easy. There's a lot of pressure. The macro environment is, is uncertain. And so we've got close eyes on that. 
like everyone else does. And then I'd say secondly for us, because we're early in this transition that we've made to allowing and pushing a lot more brick and mortar retail business through our mix is looking at the impact that that has on our e-commerce business. We expected some cannibalization near term from that transition. And we have seen that it has not been outsized to what we expected. But in 24, especially the latter half of 24 and into 25, we are expecting that to shift to a tailwind as that brand exposure and that traffic in stores leads to overall a rising tide for the brand. And so we've got a close eye on how our retail brick and mortar or physical retail presence is impacting our e-commerce or online business and how those two things are going to coexist over time. So we're majorly focused on that right now. And and in 24, that's definitely going to be a continuation. Oh, that's great, John. I feel like we've been talking so much about the vision for solo brands and the investments that you've been making over the past few quarters and what you've learned along the way. And I have to ask, you know, to close out our conversation, can you share like what that picture perfect vision for growth looks like for you. Like no holds barred, if everything went your way, like how would you describe like that growth story for the solo brands? What would that end result look like for you? Yeah, I mean, we're exploring international. We're doing a fair amount of investment in that area. Domestically, we continue to obviously drive this channel mix. We're also launching new products we have big aspirations. You know, this is a brand and a business that has certainly potential to be well north of a billion dollars of revenue as you look out several years from now and, and beyond. That's where our aspirations are is to continue to drive meaningful growth for this business with our consumers and doing that by listening to the consumer and delivering on their needs via channel mix, via product innovation, via geographic expansion. So all of those things are going to continue to be focuses for us as we reach and realize our potential. Our unaided brand awareness for Solo Stove is still under 10%. So there's just so much room for us. We're very early in our story and and excited to go and capitalize on the opportunity. That's great. And we can't wait to see what comes next for the brand. But for now, really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me, digging into some of these results and some of the next steps that come for the brand as it goes on this omni-channel journey. So John, thank you again so much for taking the time out. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been awesome. Really enjoyed it. Likewise. And to all of you, hope you enjoyed this conversation and got some helpful nuggets on the industry, what's going on with solo brands. But of course, if you have any feedback for us, any follow-up questions, we would love to hear from all of you. So drop us a line on LinkedIn at Retail Touchpoints or on X at Our Touchpoints. And of course, if you want to uh, share a little more feedback on the show, itself, feel free to leave us a rating or review on your preferred podcast player. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, frankly, anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We're probably there too. And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to the show. We're always sitting down with folks like John, those who are living and breathing retail every day, driving brands forward. So be sure to not miss an episode. That's what will happen when you subscribe. You'll get it right to your preferred device. But for now, everyone, that is it from us. Thanks again to you, John. Thanks to all of you. We will see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.